want to wrap up this section of Genesis that we've been going through, and uh, next week uh, we'll uh, get into more of a Christmas type of sermon. Uh, but we're in Genesis chapter 11, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to build. Um, and people like that, that verse, like that passage. Uh, but of course, what precedes that phrase, there's a time to build, is another phrase. There's a time to destroy. And that's exactly what God did uh, with the flood. God uh, sent a flood to destroy the world and then... He rebuilt the world, as you might say. He rebuilt society through Noah and his descendants. Noah's descendants became tribes, became nations. Uh, Each one of these nations at some point, probably very early on, began to worship someone other than God. They began to worship other spiritual beings, false gods, lesser spiritual beings than God. And, um, and this was obviously a problem. Uh, but in God's appointed time, God allowed all of these other nations to worship their false gods. And he chose, he selected out of the nations, one man for himself. It was Abraham. And this one man that he selected would be the father of another nation. A nation of people that he would have for him, his own. And through that nation, of course, came the Messiah, the Savior of not only the nation of Israel, but the Savior of the world as well. And so in Genesis chapter 11, what is happening is we are advancing toward that time when God will select this one man, Abraham, uh, initially named Abram, out of the world and to himself. And so uh, in Genesis chapter 11, what we're going to do is we're going to read the majority of this chapter before we get to Terah, who is Abraham's uh, father. And uh, we're going to just read through it. The last part of this is simply a a genealogy. Uh, But the first part is where we'll come back and we'll focus in just a minute. So in Genesis chapter 11... Here's what we read. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived 100 years and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. After he fathered Arpachshad, Shem lived 500 years and fathered other sons and daughters. 
Arpachshad lived 35 years and fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arpachshad lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and fathered Eber. After he fathered Eber, she lived 403 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and fathered Peleg. After he fathered Peleg, Eber, Eber lived 430 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and fathered Ro. After he fathered Ro, Peleg lived 209 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Ro lived 32 years and fathered Sarag. After he fathered Sarag, Ro lived 207 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and fathered Nahor. After he fathered Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah. After he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the family records of Terah. So, let's go back and let's check out this story about the Tower of Babel. And today I'm going to point out a number of words that uh, really give us an indication of what's going on. And you'll, I think, quickly discover that this is not just a story in, of biblical history, of something that happened thousands of years ago, but it's the story of you. And it's the story of what could happen to you and to me. And so back in chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And I pointed out last week when we were in Genesis chapter 10 that it's very clear that Noah's three sons had multiple descendants. And the Bible says repeatedly in three different verses in chapter 10 that each one of these nations had their own language. And you have a total of 70 different languages. So what in the world is going on? Because here in chapter 11 it says that they all spoke the same language. So what is it? Chapter 10, 70 languages. Chapter 11, one language. Uh, critics look at the Bible and say, aha, you know, the Bible's not consistent with itself. Uh, the Bible uh, is, is not true. You can't trust the Bible. Well, uh, the critics don't understand how to read uh, the Bible. And if you read the Bible, and you read it not only in the translated language of English, but you, you read otherwise, here's the deal in chapter 10, in chapter 11. The word for language in chapter 11 is the Hebrew word safa. It means lips. The word in chapter 10 is the Hebrew word lashan. It means tongue. Totally different words. The lips... When you're talking about language, they're the, the flow of communication. They're the boundary of communication. And the lips here indicates the major language that people spoke. They all shared in chapter 11 the same spoken lips, the same spoken language. In chapter 10, the tongue references the nuances of a language. So I can say Caribbean or I can say Caribbean. And that hard B, I close my lips on either one. But it's spoken one way or the other, just as an example, because of the tongue. The tongue shapes the nuances. And so what we have here are 70 different dialects, one major language. People can understand each other just like you and I can 
understand Yankees and they can understand us, right? And so, uh, but we may have a different way of saying something. We can all travel to England and uh, we, they can understand us. In England, it uh, may take some time, uh, but we can figure out things like where the loo is and, and things like that. So, and then in verse 1, uh, it says that they have the same language and the same vocabulary. The word vocabulary liter- literally says here they have the same language and few things. That's what it literally says. Now, what in the world does that mean? They have few things. Well, translators, you know, just seems to be talking about language, and so the things must refer to words. Um, But there's a possibility, and I think a very strong one, that the word things actually refers to possessions. They had few things. They had few possessions. Why would they have few possessions? Because these are tribal people. Everyone's living in a tribe. And if you think about people that live in a tribe, tribes are usually located in the same geographic area, which can only make a limited number of things. There's only a limited number of resources in a, in a certain area. For example, out here in Lubbock, Texas, you probably don't have a lot of uh, South Plains bananas when you go to the store. Why? They come from places that are a little bit more wet. Now, it's possible to grow bananas out here in, in the South Plains, but uh, probably not the best use of your uh, productivity. It's going to take a lot more work to produce bananas than it would, let's say, cotton or something that's more uh, prone to be here. And so tribes are very geographically located. I think people, this is a reference to people having very few things, and when people have very few things, they have a tendency to desire a lot more. And that's what we're about to see here in this story. If you think this story is just about a bunch of people that lived a long time ago, and it's not about you, I want you to pay very close attention because I think this really will have a, an application to your life today. So let's move on in verse 2. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. Where do we find Shinar? Mentioned before in chapter 10. And who was the king of Shinar? Who was the man who had this kingdom called Shinar? It was a man by the name of Nimrod that we spent some time looking at last week. Well, what's the deal with Nimrod? Nimrod, his name means he said get down. Nimrod was a person who told others to get down, to bend the knee before him. The Bible says that he had, uh, the, he had a new idea. He had something that he began. And what did he begin that was brand new that becomes more clear in this story? He began a civilization without God. This is the grand idea that Nimrod wanted to have, a civilization that was void of any kind of reference or dependency upon God. Nimrod, it says, was a great hunter in chapter 10. Well, so was everybody, right? Chapter 9, God told Noah and all of his descendants, go hunt the animals, they're good for food. Everyone was a hunter, right? What's the big deal about Nimrod? Well, if he wasn't just hunting animals, and we doubt he was hunting plants or trees... They're easy to catch. He was probably hunting something else, and what he was hunting, 
uh, ancient Jewish wisdom says that he was hunting down men, not in order to kill them, but in order to capture their hearts. And so we have a man who uh, the indications seem to be that he was growing to become somewhat of a tyrant. He was an empire builder. He was a man capable of bringing others to himself and promising grand things and getting people to submit to him so that he could be lifted up. And he has this kingdom in this place called Shinar. And so I want you to notice one other thing it says in verse 2. It says the people settled there. And by the way, before I get to that, let me just mention something. Chapter 11 makes no mention of Nimrod. Why? I mean, it's obviously, it's his, it's his area, because the land of Shinar belonged to him in chapter 10. But there's no mention of, of Nimrod by name. Why? Because the idea, the teachings of Babylon have nothing to do so much with the person that lived so many years ago. But for you and me, it has to do with an idea. The idea of a Nimrodian type of tyrant that people will yield themselves to and then find themselves in a terrible situation. The idea of Nimrod is let's have a society without God. And that idea is very prevalent today. It says they settled there. This is not simply a location where they settled. Yes, they settled in this location. But they settled there in their attitude. They became settled there. They adopted Nimrod's kingdom as their own. They they adopted Nimrod as their own. They adopted Nimrod's philosophy of a world without God. Mankind coming together to build something grand without God. They adopted that idea as their own. They settled there. The next verse says, They said to one another, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. The word come literally means, Come on. Let's do this together. They rallied together. This word used in this manner is used only in one other time in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And these are the words. Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. What was it that happened in Exodus? Exploitation. Slavery. Human slavery. It's what happened in Exodus. I think what we have here is a very slight allusion to human exploitation and slavery, and it won't be the last one. They said, come, let us make bricks. Let's make oven-fired bricks. In all of the Old Testament, 
There's only one other place where the term make bricks is used. It's in Exodus. Exodus chapter 5, verse 7, for example, says, Don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves. And you probably know that in the Exodus story, Pharaoh forced the Israelite slaves to find their own raw materials in order to make bricks. I think this is a second allusion to human slavery and exploitation. And then it says they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. It literally says in this verse they use asphalt for material. It says they use asphalt for stuff. What does that mean? They use asphalt for stuff. Asphalt is stuff. Asphalt is material. What does this mean? They use asphalt for the stuff. Well, this is not just about the mortar. I mean, who cares about mortar in this story? This is about stuff. This is about materials. This is about materialism. By materialism, I'm not talking about going to the store and buying something. That's a different kind of materialism, okay? I'm not talking about making Black Friday purchases, all right? That's a different type of materialism. The materialism here means devaluing people. It means viewing people as if they are worth nothing more than the stuff that they can give to you. Viewing people as if they're not worth anything other than how they benefit you. Tyrants think this way. Tyrants look at the people, and they don't see people the way God sees them, but they see people in this way. What can these people do for me? That's what tyrants do. And so it's the idea that if someone doesn't directly benefit you, they must be worthless, right? Of course, we don't believe that to be so. But this view that's being adopted at the Tower of Babel, this is how people are viewed. In other words, this type of materialism leaves out the spiritual. Hey, let's take away people's individuality. Let's make everyone the same. Let's make everyone interchangeable. Let's just consider everyone to be part of the same uh, socioeconomic cogs in the machine of society. And if some cog goes wrong, discard it. It's worthless. Who cares about this person? We'll just replace this person with another. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you're just a cog, just a nothing, just a replaceable employee, just a replaceable piece of the machinery in providing someone else glory? I want you to know God does not view you that way because God made you to be the only you that there ever has been and ever will be. 
And God loves the way he made you. He does. God made you in his image, not just some random clone of something else. You see, the more that we read and the more that we understand Genesis chapter 11, the more we keep finding clues that the people there were exploited, they were enslaved, and they were stripped of their spirituality. And by the way, that is something tyrants know. That is why tyrants always want to do one of two things. Either remove God completely from the picture or replace God with some type of spiritual idea formed in their image. Tyrants always emphasize the material in order to destroy the spiritual. They see people as nothing more than bodies, bodies without souls. Tyrants know that there is power in the spiritual. Tyrants know that if people have a strong sense of spirituality, those people can never be enslaved. In the next verse, chapter 4. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower, uh, and a tower with its top in the sky. And let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. What was the objective of Babel? Let's make a city that reaches up to the heavens, a city in the sky. That idea of a city in the sky in all of the Bible, there's only one other reference to a city in the sky like that. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. And here's the way it reads. Listen, Israel. Today, you are about to cross the Jordan. And you will enter and drive out nations greater and stronger than you with large cities fortified to the heavens. That verse is talking about how they are about to enter into a land called Canaan. Canaan was a wicked society. Canaan was a society that exploited people and enslaved people and killed people that they thought were worthless. Tyrants love to build monuments, usually monuments to themselves, by extolling their greatness. The taller, the better. But they need people to do it. They can't do it themselves. So how in the world do you get people to build you a self-aggrandizing monument? Here's how you do it. You sell the people on a utopian version of society. You tell them utopia is just around the corner. You say to, I mean, you can't say to people, hey, I've got an idea. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to enslave you. I want to raise your taxes. 
I'll become rich and powerful, and you, you're going to work like a dog and die. You can't sell people that idea. No, instead, tyrants hunt you down by appealing to your natural desire to be elevated, to do something greater, to go higher, to reach heaven. You know, we have tyrants today, and by tyrants, I don't simply mean the obvious ones like Hitler and Stalin and those in recent history. But I mean anyone who seeks to gain power by suppressing other people. You need to be careful when people start promising you the moon. You need to be careful. You need to be discerning. You hear phrases the politicians use all the time. And these are phrases that seem really good. No child left behind. Free health care for all. We're going to have a war on poverty. The, the war on poverty, by the way, began five years before I was born. And what it did, it enslaved people to a never-ending cycle of poverty. All of these ideas are beautiful ideas. Wonderful ideas. I, I want them. I want all of these ideas to come true. But they always come at a cost. And the cost is your freedom. Unfortunately, people are willing to sacrifice their freedoms if they are promised utopia. And tyrants know it. Here's the lie the tyrants use. If you'll restrict your freedoms, if you'll just give up this one little liberty on top of all the other little liberties that we ask you to give up, we will guarantee you heaven on earth. They say, it's, it's just a little thing. It's just a mask. I mean, if you want to go visit your grandmother in the nursing home, it's just a mask. If you want to ride a plane, it's just a mask. If you want to ride a plane, it's just your shoes. Just take off your shoes. If you want to ride a plane, we need to stand in this other line and, and we need to grope you over here. Just a little groping. If you want to ride a plane, well, we need you to go through this other line and we're going to have a millimeter or yeah millimeters wave scanner and it's going to send electromagnetic radiation through your clothes and some stranger's going to be able to see your body naked so you can just ride the plane it's no big deal everyone's doing it it's just a little bit of your freedom just a little bit and so people are willing to give up their freedoms because they believe the lie that utopia is just my compliance away. And all I have to do is comply with the authorities. And so people become convinced to look for this utopia. And this utopia is always a utopia without God. You know, the only place that perfection can ever truly be found is in God. Not in the empty promises of a lying tyrant who knows full well that he cannot deliver utopia. And by the time the people wake up 
and they realize that they've been lied to, it's too late. Their freedoms are gone, and they won't be won back without a terrible sacrifice. In verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The phrase the Lord here is very important. It's a very different phrase than what we find at the beginning of the flood. For the Lord is called God. The word God is a very impersonal term. It's a term of uh, judgment and wrath, usually. The word God is used in reference to the coming of the flood. But here, the word is the Lord. It's His personal name. This is usually used in Scripture in reference to mercy. And that's what we find here. The merciful name of God is used... When God comes down at Babylon, it wasn't to punish the people. He was delivering them. The people didn't do anything wrong other than be deceived by a lying tyrant. And God is saving the people from the tyranny of Babylon. And it says he came down. When the Bible talks about the Lord came down, it's Very rarely is it ever talking about a geographical movement of God, because God is, of course, everywhere. Uh, But this is a spiritual experience when God comes down. It means this. It means that God is able to see things from a human perspective. He comes down to our level, if you will. He condescends to where you and I live. He understands, and he shows, us, he shows us his mercy because he understands the mess that we've gotten ourselves into, and we need to be rescued. And so when the Lord comes down, at least in this passage, it is to lift us up from our mess, to rescue us from our oppressors. By the way, tyrants, they always want to stand on the necks of those they oppress to lift themselves up. They will put you down and keep you down in order to make themselves richer, more powerful, more strong. This verse also talks about, it says the word humans there. That's a decent translation. Literally, it says the sons of Adam. What a beautiful phrase, the sons of Adam. What does that mean? The sons of Adam means that that we are connected to that original one that God created in his image. It's a very different view from God's perspective of humanity than it was in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 6, do you remember? When God looked at humanity, he called humanity this word, flesh. He called humanity meat. When God looked at the sinfulness of humanity in Genesis 6, it was as if he saw human pieces of meat, bodies without souls, simply walking the earth, doing whatever they wanted, destroying themselves and destroying everything else in their, in their uh, path. They were people that had no use other than to be given over to destruction. But now, God sees these people that have become enslaved, and he sees them as sons of Adam, in need of his mercy, in need of his kindness. And so God is about to restore humanity in the same way that God told Noah to do after the flood. Do you remember what God told Noah 
after the flood. He said, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to spread out. Scatter all over the earth. This was God's will for humanity to scatter over the earth. But what did the tyrants of Babel do? They brought everyone together. They brought everyone together for a reason. And God is about to scatter them again. In verses 6 and 7, we read this. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan will, do, will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. This almost sounds like God is afraid of technology. Oh, no. The people are gathering together. They're able to make bricks. There's nothing they won't be able to do. That, that's what it sounds like in our translations, but that's not, what, that's not what's going on. I mean, it, it almost sounds sort of like a good thing. Hey, they're coming together as one people. You know, one nation. Under God, it's in our Pledge of Allegiance, right? One nation, we're all coming together. But actually, what's happened here is not a good thing. The phrase one people is only found one other time in Genesis. It's found in uh, Genesis 34. Jacob had a number of sons and daughters. He had a daughter named Dinah. Dinah was kidnapped. She was violated by a guy by the name of Shechem. Jacob's upset about it. Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, they're upset. And they're ready to kill the guy for doing what they did to their sister. And so they reach out to Shechem and his family. Shechem's protected. Dinah's still kidnapped in Shechem's tent. Trying to figure out a way out of this. So the kidnapper, Shechem, and his family, they, they make an offer to Jacob and his family. They say, why don't we intermarry? Okay. Your sons will marry my daughters. My sons will marry your daughters. We'll sort of put all this behind us and we'll become, here's the phrase, we'll become one people. But this was a trick by Shechem and his family. The offer to become one people, it seemed like a truce. It seemed like an offer of peace. But in reality, it was a lie. It was intended to cover up an assault. It was intended to cover up exploitation. To cover up human slavery. The phrase one people does not have a good connotation here. The Lord says they might become one people, meaning they might become inclined to enslave and to exploit even more. And it says, all having the same language, the nothing they plan. The word plan usually has a, has a good um, idea in our mind. You know, we make plans for the week, make plans for the day, but this is uh, sort of a a more dubious type of word. It means plot. In fact, the same word plot or plan here is usually used when someone wants to bear false witness. When someone wants to go to court and commit perjury in order to defraud somebody else. That's the word plan used. These people, the Lord says, might become one people wanting to exploit and enslave people. They might plot together, and then nothing they do will be impossible for them. 
The word impossible means fortified. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, something I read before, where the children of Israel are getting ready to come in and conquer Canaan. Listen, Israel, today you're to cross, about to cross in, uh, the Jordan to enter and drive out the nations greater and stronger th- than you with large cities fortified to the heavens. Same word, fortified, impossible, same word. What's happening here is that God is saying these people are coming together to hurt people, to enslave people, to exploit people. They're, become, they're plotting together, the leaders are, and they are getting stronger. They're becoming more fortified. Something needs to be done. You see, God didn't shut down the Babel project because he was threatened by technology. There's no technology on the earth that can threaten God. The people had been duped by a tyrant who made them believe that they didn't need God. All they needed to do was bend the knee to the tyrant. And if God didn't do something about it, these people would become fortified in their belief and permanently enslaved and trapped in one location. The next verses say, So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. The kingdom of Shinar has become Babel, or Babylon. Babylon, and all throughout human history, and especially biblical history, will always be an empire or a symbol of empire building. It will be a symbol of tyranny, of slavery, of exploitation. Here's the big picture. Babel seems wonderful on the surface. Hey, everybody, let's come together and let's build something cool. Let's build something big. Let's build utopia. It's a utopian dream, right? But beneath the surface, it's not. It's not a utopian dream. It's a dystopian nightmare. It's Shechem who violates and overpowers the innocent. It's Canaan who plots to pervert justice. It's Egypt who enslaves people, especially God's people, without any kind of mercy. Why is the promise of utopia so bad? Because the promise of utopia... Utopia is never a free society in which free people freely come together to do something great, like build a tower. Utopia is always an empire run by a tyrant who lies to people in order to get them to follow him. And then they become exploited. And then they become enslaved. And then their worth is measured in nothing but bricks. Brick making was not a grand idea of the advancement of human society. It was forced labor. In fact, if you want to know where slavery came from, it was Babel. Babel invented slavery to build its tower. And so God stopped Babel, 
And God achieved what he commanded Noah to do and his sons to do in the first place. Spread out and become diverse. And this explains what tyrants are always afraid of. It's found back in verse 4. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. The leaders of Babel wanted all of the people to remain in one place so that the people could be controlled. They wanted to concentrate their power. The tyrants wanted everyone to be the same, making people virtually worthless. Just numbers, just pawns, just slaves. See, the fortified walls of the city of Babel, they weren't meant to keep enemies out. They were meant to keep the serfs in. A couple of takeaways for you and me. Number one, as Christians, we always need to stand against tyranny and injustice. We must speak for those who have no voice. And we must convince others not to bend the knee to the potential tyrants of our day. Secondly, each of us need to make a decision, and I would ask that you make this decision today. If tyrants want all of us to be the same, then we cannot allow that to happen. We have to make a choice between whether we want to be free or whether we want to be equal in all respects. I'm not talking about treating people equally. We do that. We should do that. That should be our goal in society. Equal treatment under the law. But beyond that, real equality does not exist in this world. Some of us are tall. Others are short. Some of us are thin. Others of us are beautiful. (laughs) Can we, as a society, strive to treat everyone the right way? Of course we should. But we need to recognize that every one of us is distinct. You and I are like stones created by God. Every stone on earth is different. It's unique. The Bible, in fact, in the New Testament calls us living stones. It doesn't call us living bricks, building a temple. We are living stones, building the temple of God. Why, why doesn't it call us bricks? Because bricks are made by man. Every brick looks pretty much like every other brick. Would you rather be a stone made by God or a brick made by a tyrant? The choice is yours. You need to be free. God made us to be free. God made us To be free to the extent that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross. To provide true spiritual freedom to you. You'll never become more truly you than the day that you begin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ.
God loves you so much that he, through Christ, became one of us. It's the story that we celebrate at Christmas time. God becoming a man. God becoming flesh. And Jesus, this Jesus, died on a cross. Without ever having committed a sin, he died on a cross to pay for our sins. To give us his righteousness. And he rose from the grave so that we could have eternal life. 